This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So our theme today, as we are going through this Advent season, is joy. We've spent time as we are walking through uh, this Advent season, this Christmas season, uh, looking through all of these different things about who God is and how he shows up for us, how he has shown up and how he always shows up for us. He arrives, he comes to us. And so we've talked about what that looks like in, in his peace. And we're talking today about what that looks like uh, in bringing joy this Christmas, this Advent. Now, I don't know about you, but my initial response to talking about joy isn't always a positive one. And I would assume for you as well, this year especially, trying to respond and wax eloquent about joy in the season in which we are all finding ourselves is very difficult. Uh, it feels plastic sometimes. It feels uh, synthetic. Uh, it, it does not feel as, as honest because there are many people who are struggling for, for joy, struggling to even have a comprehensive definition for joy in the midst of a deadly pandemic in the midst of incredible losses, in the midst of incredible injustice, in the midst of so many heartbreaking things, the brokenness that we find in our cities, in our states, in our country, in this world, it can be very difficult to just try to conjure up a sense of joy. And there are a few things that, that stuck out for me, and there were a few quotes that I felt like uh, encapsulated just what some of us might be feeling. The first is from the New Testament writer uh, in uh, John. And in 2 John 1, 2, he says, although I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, John didn't have access to Zoom, but I assume if he were where we are now, he would be saying the same thing. I would rather not have to use a camera and a microphone. I would rather be able to see you and we would rather be able to be around each other face to face to be able to complete our joy. But yet we are in a space where we're trying and people are doing it different ways, but we have been trying to be wise about this pandemic and trying to uh, make sure that people are healthy and make sure that people are safe and protected. And in the midst of that, we're, we're missing something. We're, we're losing something. We're trying really hard to fight for joy. According to this passage, our joy gets complete when we're able to, to see one another face to face and be able to engage. And yet something has occurred that has gotten in the way of that. So how do we fight for joy? There's another quotation from a less reverent source uh, and that is from the famous character Dwight Schrute on The Office. And he says about joy, I never smile if I can help it. 
Showing one's teeth is a sign of submission in primates. When someone smiles at me, all I see is a chimpanzee, a chimpanzee begging for its life. Now that's silly, and yet it can be really hard to want to engage in joy when it makes you feel weak. It can make it, make it really hard to even want to figure out how to be joyous in the midst of it because your muscle memory is so used to just being angry or being frustrated or being in a defensive posture and to give up a little bit of that, to even dare try to grasp for joy, makes us feel weak, makes us feel a little less powerful. But here's an even, uh, to, to, to counter Dwight's wisdom, uh, the famous, well-known African-American theologian Willie Jen, uh, Jennings at Yale Divinity School, he says something about joy that I feel like has been resonating with me for the last few years. He says, joy is an act of resistance against despair and its forces. It's an act of resistance against despair and its forces. Dr. Jennings says that being a black man, he says he, he comes from a, a culture, a history of people who have dealt with incredible atrocities, incredible brokenness, and yet a people who, has had to, who have had to cling to joy because life created so much heaviness that they were far too busy to spend too much time complaining and they had to spend more time hoping and grasping at this idea of joy. This, this idea of joy that, that is always an act of resistance. And so if there were anything that you were to take from this, that is this Advent season, resist. Your joy should be a form of resistance. If you're looking at the brokenness and you're being honest, like we preached last week, and you're telling the truth about what is broken and you're telling the truth about what has been hard, the, the next question is, so how do we resist those forces? And the, sometimes there's nothing tangible that happens to show that those forces have stopped. But the only thing we can cling to is the hope and this idea of joy that is truly an act of resistance. So let's talk about this act of resistance. The words joy and the words rejoice, they show up very frequently in the Bible. I mean, depending on the version that you're using, you will find the word joy used over 250 times in the scriptures. And you'll find the word rejoice over 200 times in the scriptures. In addition, we see words like gladness and sing and laugh. There's an old rabbinic tradition among some of the oldest rabbis and some of the most ancient rabbis that suggests that when we meet God in heaven, we will have to provide an explanation for every good pleasure that we did not enjoy. This idea that whatever it is that is good that we should engage in, we absolutely should. And, and the important qualifier in that is every good pleasure or every pleasure that falls within the way of life outlined in the scriptures, outlined by God. But still, there's this idea that we might have to explain to the creator why we did not take joy in the goodness that surrounds us. That why did we not look for at least the things that are good for us to be able to cling to and hold on to? Now, this uh, Sunday, uh, 
One of the many texts that churches will likely be contemplating from as they talk about joy is 1 Thessalonians 5, where we read, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And in Galatians 5, joy is listed as one of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. This idea, this, you know, by the way, it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit, right? This idea that all of these things should be true together. And so, so joy is listed as one of the fruit, this bowl of fruit that should be present. Joy is something, if the Holy Spirit is in us, then joy should be in us. Now listen, there's a number of, of, of virtues, valuable virtues that are in that list of Galatians 5. But joy is the second. Joy is one of the things produced by our attention, right? Our attention to God's Spirit. If God's Spirit is moving in us, joy, it may have to be fought for, but joy should be present. Now, if you... Uh, were to look at just everything I just said, and we were to just take those facts, we could get the impression that joy is just another thing we should conjure up and work on. Because many times, especially in church circles, people just say, you ought to be this. You ought to feel that. And when you get the oughts and the shoulds from people, from pastors, then and, and you don't get what should be actually undergirding that, you don't get what should be lighting those fires for you, then you feel the pressure to conjure that up yourself. So you feel like, well, I guess I'm supposed to be joyous, so let me try to make myself joyous. So joy then becomes a form of a self-improvement project. The way that you're trying to make yourself better is to conjure up artificial joy. And we, we could see confirmation here of the, the harmful assumption of uh, that, that mental health challenges should be pushed aside then. You've got folks who are dealing with legitimate mental health issues, and we're telling people, you just need to be more joyous. Or you need to just trust God. Or you're just too blessed to be stressed when the truth of the matter is, I am stressed and I need Jesus to meet me in the stress too. Because it's when Jesus meets me in the stress that I learn to fight for joy in the midst of the stress. So, so us kind of encouraging people to fake it, like we talked about last week, that can't be what Christmas is for us. Because the God who loves us, loves the real us, not the pretend us, wants to meet us right there. He wants to hold us right there. And it's us being held by him in the midst of that that becomes the very foundation of our joy. The very foundation of where we, where we exist. You see, in many, in many ways, we find ourselves in, in this middle place, this liminal place, where you have what is, the pain and the suffering of what is, and then you have this, this, this aspirational idea of what should be or what might be. And so we find ourselves in the middle so often, contemplating what is and what is frustrating and what is hard and what is painful, and then what should be and what is hopeful. And we're in the middle place all the time. We're just trying to figure out how do I tread water in the middle of this place, this liminal place. So what does liminal joy look like? Joy just can't be once everything is good, now I can have joy. 
That can't be the case. That's not what we see even in Scripture because the biblical reality is very different. For all the Bible has to say about joy, the Bible gives ample attention to sorrow and sadness. We have a whole book called Lament, Lamentations, a whole book about what it is to, to, to share our grievances and to air the things that are painful. Many psalms expressing frustration and fear. Why are they there? Because God loves the real us. He meets us not in the pretend spaces. He meets us exactly where we authentically are. And throughout the scriptures, genuine joy is usually something that also kind of is joined with some of the fear and some of the frustrations. There's this call to, to wrestling for joy in the midst of it. And by the way, almost every time you see joy uh, in the scriptures, it's the result of a gift. Joy is often a response to something God has done. Something God has done. Doesn't mean all problems being solved, but joy is often a response to something God has done. And one of the best examples is Mary's song, the Magnificat. Right in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, she starts singing, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Mary goes on to describe how this child within her womb will be a part of a holy disruption of the status quo. God has done something and there's this promise of more. So Mary is full of joy. The, the promise hasn't been even realized yet. Certain things have not yet occurred yet, but there's a hope for something that she roots based on whatever it is that God has already done. And yet, joy is elusive. In the song that we're going to read today, we're going to notice that joy shows up in two tenses, in two different uh, ways. The poem that, that, that gets structured, it's, it's, it separates itself into two halves. That first half that we're going to read is very reflective. It looks backward. The second is more anticipatory. The second starts to look ahead. So you see that the writer and, the, and thereby the listener is in that middle in between liminal space, reflecting on what God has done and who he is and longing for what he promises to do, longing for the ways he promises to come. The poet, like us, is in the middle. The joyful events are either in the past or in the future, but the poet is in the present. That's why joy feels elusive for all of us. And not just because of how unique the last year and a half, almost two years have been. As much as our separation from our loved ones uh, is, is joy's adversary, guess what else is an adversary of joy? Boredom and mundane sadness. That is also an adversary of joy. When I'm not able to even cling to or reach out for something that, that allows me to reflect on who God is, who God has been, gives me something to hold on to, give me, gives me some foundational, rooted sense of joy that I can cling to, what happens next? If I don't have that, it's very easy to get taken away and drown in the waters of boredom and mundane sadness. And one of the reasons that joy, one of the reasons that joy is, 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 is elusive is this constant, ever-present gap that exists between what we want and what we have.
That is always where we find ourselves. This gap, and it is, it is ever-present, it is perpetual. There's always a gap somewhere. Might be small for you, might be large, but there's a gap between what you have and what you want. And this isn't to villainize the fact that there are things that we want and maybe even need. Could also add that, what we have and what we need. But the fact of the matter is, what do we do in that middle place? What do we do in that liminal space? There's a, uh, a, a famous economist from Czechoslovakia. He points out that this is even true in the Garden of Eden. He points out that despite the goodness all around them, Adam and Eve desired something they didn't have. So they ate the forbidden fruit. Every single struggle that we have, every single sin struggle that we have, is a function of us engaging the difference or that gap between what we have and what we want what we think we need. And even in areas where there's not sin, but there's just a deep longing, those things exist because of what we have and what we need or what we want. The gap between what we have and what we desire runs through every domain of our lives. It's the engine of our modern economy. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. When John the Baptist told his countrymen to get ready, to prepare the way of the Lord. He did so because the way things were wasn't what the people desired. He knew people had been longing and waiting for a Messiah. Now, they didn't quite even understand everything they really needed. They didn't even know exactly. They had, you know, their desires were not nearly large enough, but they thought they wanted political salvation and they thought they wanted a restoration of Israel and they were longing to not be in this subjugated sta uh, status. And so they were longing for something. John is saying, prepare your hearts, get ready, because what you need is coming. They were in a liminal space. I remember um, a comedian uh, going on about how absurd it is for us as human beings to get bent out of shape about the poor service we get on a commercial flight. And his point was really, if you turn back the clock a hundred years, people would have been amazed at just how easy it is for us to just sit on chairs moving through clouds. The same thing could probably be said about how annoyed we might get uh, at having to wait a few extra days for packages to be delivered from the other side of the world. The bottom line is times change, which means expectations shift. But you know what stays the same? The gap between the way things are and the way we wish they were. That never changes. Every single generation of people that have ever walked this earth have struggled with that gap. But let me tell you, our, our, our very integrity hangs on our response to this disparity. Our very integrity hangs on it. We are on a quest for joy. This Christmas season, this Advent season, should be a reminder that we are always on this quest for joy. We remember what people were going through, waiting and longing for joy to arrive, longing for uh, God to show up, longing for the Messiah to come. This Christmas joy uh, should reveal our character. What do I mean by that? Well, far too often when we try to secure our joy in the present, 
it slips away. So, so often when we try to make joy happen for ourselves, the result ends up being bitter. I'm going to point out here as we read Psalm 126 really quickly, you're going to see some things here about ourselves. Hopefully you see some things that are true of your own heart, and I know they're true of mine. But listen to the first half of this poem. I'm going to read the first three verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. We were joyful. We rejoiced. Now, do you notice two things here? First, the source of their joy was a gift from God. You realize this experience is not one of self-satisfaction. It's not something that they had to conjure up themselves. This was not a sense of self-help. This was a pure sense of reception. They received joy from God. And second, notice that even though the event that brought joy is in the past, there still remains this sense of satisfaction flowing from it. They're able to reflect on what God has done. The act of reflection brings real joy. I don't know all of the specifics of some of the heaviness that you're carrying in this liminal space right now, but I can ask on what are you reflecting right now? It doesn't mean stop thinking about the things that are heavy because that's something church folks have done far too long. That's not the answer. The answer is how do we walk and chew gum at the same time? How do I hold some of the hard things and heavy things while still reflecting on the very goodness of God and reflecting on the things that God has shown himself to be and the ways in which God promises to continue to show up. Am I able to reflect on that? And do I derive a sense of joy in that reflection? That's what it means to fight for joy. The act of reflection brings real joy. In fact, the poet here in Psalms realizes that there would be no current sense of loss without that prior sense of joy. You realize you don't even know to lament something you've lost if you didn't take great joy in the thing that you've lost. For those of us who have loved long ones, uh, sorry, lost loved ones, for those of us that have lost folks that we love, that we have deep relationships with, those of us like myself who's lost a parent, the reason why the loss hits so hard is because of the deep joy that you derived, the deep happiness and joy and satisfaction that you derived from that person's existence. So when you reflect on the good things, it's a combination thing where you're like, I feel a sense of loss because I don't have that, but I also can reflect and, and experience deep joy because of what I've received, because of what I've had. And unlike what happens when we lose a loved one, we know we can, when God has done things and shown himself to us, then we have this, this expectation, this hope, this anticipation that God will again come, that God will come. And it's not just an expectation, it's a promise that he makes, that he's going to come. The, th the reason why God makes the promise to make all things new is because he's acknowledged the things that are in all ways broken. And so we have this hope. And by virtue, we have this joy. Now, it would seem that if our present situation is dominated by 
despair, which in a lot of ways for, for us it is, we don't need to be ashamed to take joy in memory. Based on this passage, I mean, we, we, we don't, there's nothing wrong with, with excavating our situation to find the joy that lies at the root of our sadness. We, we cannot be with those we love, but we did love them. And we do love them, and there's joy even at the root of some of that sadness. Now, here's the second half of this passage where the poet begins to look at the present with this clear disparity between what is and what should be and how that builds hope for the future. Here's that half of the poem uh, beginning with verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Think back on what that economist said. The gap between what we want and what we have is terribly persistent. And yet, how else? would we ever know satisfaction if there was never any longing, if there was never any hope yet to be fulfilled? It is the empty watercourse that gets to take up the rain. It's the dry seed that can be sown. Without the barrenness of the empty field, there is no fullness of harvest. Now listen, this isn't to, to, to give us a reason to overlook the barrenness, this is not a reason to overlook the fact that the watercourses are dry in areas of our lives. What, what this is and what the psalmist is showing us is there is a place where we can acknowledge what is and even mourn and lament what is while still hoping and taking joy in what God has shown us when things were full and how he promises to make them full again. We don't know how. We don't know what it will look like, but Christmas is that promise. Advent embodies that promise. Advent is this promise that we can hold on to this idea that, that God has been good to us. And he promises to be good. He promises to continue to come and show his goodness. So this biblical poet in this Psalm 126, he likely is in the same situation or is very similar situation as our own in many ways. The events that bring joy, those tangible gifts of God, may be mostly in the past. They may be mostly in the future. But being stuck in the present, this liminal space, it doesn't mean those gifts don't exist. It means that even in this space, this hard place, this uncertain place, this heartbroken place that some of us may find ourselves in this Christmas season, we are reminded and God is reminding us and he uses the Advent season to remind us that we are held by his spirit and we have the joy of memory and the hope of anticipation. That's the joy that we hold to. That even in the midst of horrible conditions when Jesus was born, and Mary and Joseph are facing horrible conditions, facing potential death in the midst of it, and yet having to hope, and yet having to remember. They were able to cling to something. 
well, God did this thing. And if I can cling to that good thing God did, that shows me I serve a good God. It shows me I serve a God that is present. And I may not see evidence of his presence right now, but I can hold on to what I've seen him do. And I'm believing that he's going to show up again. And so in that, I hope that the words from another biblical writer give us some sense of hope and a sense of abiding joy in the midst of this liminal space, in the midst of this in-between place where we've got pain, we've got suffering, but we're, re- we're wrestling for joy. And listen, there are things that bring real happiness for sure, very temporarily so, but we're wrestling for abiding joy. Listen to these words from uh, another biblical writer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are, you're good. And yet, God, we are often in this middle, in-between space where we're looking for evidence of goodness in the midst of suffering, in the midst of longing, in the midst of heartbreak. And God, many times there's, there's no time like the holiday season that begins to emphasize those things even more. We're reminded of either what we want, what we've lost, what we don't have, and what we need. And God, sometimes we don't know what to do with that. We're told to be joyous. And so we try to be joyous. We try to sing songs that sound joyous. We try to take actions that look joyous. And yet, God, we are, we are struggling at times. I am struggling at times. So God, I pray that you would give us, you would remind us and press upon our hearts the things about which we should be reflecting so that we can remember who you are. We can remember what you have promised. We can remember what you have done. And Lord, as we are in that in-between space where we see what we have, but we also know what we need, I pray that your joy abides in us, that your joy breeds hope in us, that this Christmas, it's an authentic, real Christmas, a Christmas, an Advent season in which we know you love the real us, you meet the real us, you bring joy in the midst of the real. And so, God, I pray that you would indeed bring a joy that abides, bring a joy that truly uh, gives us something to hold on to. If we don't see it realized right now, we can hope and know that you have promised your coming is a promise that you were always coming and that one day, the final time that you come to be with us, You will come, make all things new, and there will be no more longing, and there will be no more crying. There will be no more hurt. There will be no more heartbreak. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this final promise, this final benediction from the God that brings us all joy. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Merry Christmas. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, 
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.